Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Week 12. It is week 12. And we've got only one week left, so we're going to do this. Let's pray, and we're going to get through as much as we can. I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, but I, I'm going to get through as much as we can here. Let's pray. God, we love your word. It is the most important book in the entire world. There's no other book like it. How critical it is for us to see the fruition of all the covenant promises in the word of God, all of the prophetic word about the Messiah, all come to a place of sharp focus in the New Testament. Still, there's lots left in your eschatological plan, but what a great and exciting thing for us to study your word. And as we get into these uh, general epistles, we look at the way they're written, how they address so many practical issues that we all deal with as Christians in the Christian life today and in church, I just pray it'd be a motivation, a help to us, ensuring and putting together in our lives a kind of a strength, a kind of fortress of security and care and, and protection from false doctrine and from falling away and all the things that you're concerned about as you write through these uh, prophetic writers in the New Testament. Thanks for this crew being with me for uh, the last 12 weeks. Thanks that we have the hope of getting through all of the 27 books of the New Testament by next week. And I pray we get there and we keep moving through this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You know the chart. We've dealt with all these books from the Apostle Paul, early books we called them, major books, prison epistles, and the pastoral epistles. We started with James, which we did chronologically, as you remember. We dealt with Hebrews last week. We dealt with First Peter last week. Did we not? No, we didn't. We stopped with Hebrews, which was a lot to, to bite off. We were finishing Paul's epistles. Well, tonight I hope to get through a few of these, First Peter, Second Peter, Jude. We'll take these in chronological order, as best that we know, at least. And then 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, we'll see how far we can get there. The book of Revelation, we call these the general epistles or the Catholic epistles. and has nothing to do with Rome or the Pope, as we said last week. And then, of course, the book of Revelation, a prophetic book. The book of 1st Peter, the length of 1st Peter is five chapters, 105 verses. In the Greek New Testament, there are 1,684 words in the Greek New Testament as it relates to this book. So there's your data, 5, 105, and 1,684. The author is stated in the book, this way. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That seems pretty straightforward. There are other Peters, but uh, this is Peter the apostle. There were only 12 apostles in the gospel. We had one, of course, that defected, and we had that one replaced. We've discussed that in the book of Acts in terms of my theories regarding that. There's been a lot of doubt regarding whether or not Peter actually wrote this letter. They claim that the style is too high for the fishermen. It just doesn't look like something that he would write, and yet I think part of that is not only the age of the apostle Peter at this particular point, Uh, But if you look carefully, as a lot of linguists have done, the speeches that are recorded in Luke's account in the book of Acts with the verbiage and the vocabulary and even the style in 1 Peter, uh, there are certainly some points that are germane in terms of connecting these two together, the recorded sermons of Peter and also the epistle here of 1 Peter. Not to mention, and we've dealt with this before, the concept of someone here being the writing slave, literally, Salvanus, we call him Silas also, you know him, faithful brother, I regard him, I have written 
written by, I should start very strongly with the first word, by Salvanus, by Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, right? Not a biological brother, but a spiritual brother. I have written you briefly, exhorting and declaring, and on he goes. So we assume that this is the amanuensis, as we learn that word in our study, Silas writing this. Now, of course, we understand as this works, as we've discussed before, God governing the writing of these things so that he gets down exactly what he wants on paper. This is much like Mary, we said, and the Holy Spirit bringing together the human factor, the divine factor to put in, in that case, in the incarnate Christ, exactly what God wanted, which was perfection. And so it is with the word of God in the original manuscripts. And so we recognize that even if the amanuensis in this case uh, chose vocabulary words that may have not been the vocabulary that Peter would have used in terms of his own speech, though I don't think that's necessary even to view it that way, nevertheless, it may help some explain why they think this Greek and this vocabulary and the syntax of how this is constructed seems pretty complex for Peter the fisherman. But no, he becomes a pastor. There's a lot of guys, I mean, like me, that uh, did very little in my early years of education, skipped every class I, I could in terms of the assignments at least. And you become a pastor, you become a professional student. And uh, so Peter's had lots of time by the time he writes this book to become well-versed not only in scripture of the Old Testament, but language and communication, because that's what he's been doing as the first mega pastor, if you want to put it that way, of the mega church at least in Jerusalem. He's preaching all the time, day by day on the Temple Mounts. Date. First thing that's helpful in determining the date is where was Peter when this was written. First Peter chapter 5 verse 13 ends this way. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Question, of course, is Babylon. What are we talking about? Of course, some have suggested there was a literal Babylon in Egypt. It was a small place, but it was called Babylon in the first century. And some people said it's uh, that's what it was. It was a military outpost, actually. But they thought, well, maybe he's writing from from uh, from Egypt. There is, of course, the historic Babylon, the Mesopotamian Babylon, and uh, it had been, at least in terms of its environs, restored. Obviously, wasn't the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar. Some have suggested he's actually writing from Mesopotamia, between the Tigris and Euphrates River. Some say it is Jerusalem, and because of the connection of the fallen and depraved nature in terms of the Spirit of God and, and, and the Christ, that we're referring to Jerusalem. Uh, but most agree that we're probably speaking of Rome in this regard, that it's used symbolically certainly in the book of Revelation. Though this predates the book of Revelation, you can see that in Revelation 14 and Revelation 17 where we see Rome uh, described in a way that we think perhaps we're dealing with Babylon using, being used symbolically, chapter 17. Anyway, the point is that most people have decided this is uh, Babylon, that is Rome. And, it, and I think it's easy to understand that because of extra biblical tradition regarding what happens to Peter. If any of you got that book, Acts After Acts by Lifton, that certainly makes the case from extra biblical writings that he dies in Rome. And uh, we've already dealt with that a little bit as we dealt with the life of the Apostle Paul. If that's the case, and I believe it is, then we're, gonna, we're trying to find a place where this is written in terms of the timeline. If he's writing from Babylon, the persecution that is so thematic throughout this whole book ramps up after the fire of 64 when Nero is on the throne. We've talked a lot about him in our study, and we're pretty clear on dating his martyrdom at 67. So Peter dies in 67. The heat of the highest persecution against the Christians in Babylon that he's writing from, that's Rome, I believe it is, then you've got a window between 64 and 67. So we've just given it a date of approximately 65. So AD 65, we're just pinning a date for the sake of our chart uh, to put it, put it there. 
the recipients. It's also stated in the second half of verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And again, this raises lots of questions. What are you talking about? The dispersion. Uh, the dispersion, or the diaspora, as it's sometimes called, is a phrase that is used of the Jewish people being driven out of the land, which has happened many times throughout history. But the idea of them being Jewish certainly is something significant in terms of people saying, well, we're talking about Peter writing to Jewish Christians. And while that may be the case, I think the way that it's described as Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, I don't think it necessarily is going to be Peter, in this case, writing to folks, just like Paul wrote to the Romans and saying, I'm writing specifically to the Jewish people. I certainly think, even with an opening like this, even if they were those who were primarily Jewish, we've got him writing to these folks that are in fellowships all over all over Asia Minor. It is the broadest specific addressee in the New Testament. In other words, we have, you know, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, to the Thessalonians, to the Romans. This is the broadest specific, quote unquote, set of addressees in the New Testament. The question is whether it's the diaspora or the Jewish Christians alone. While I do think there's many references to that, there's enough Gentile connections within this book, several of them, chapters two and four in particular, that lead us to believe that we're not just talking about Jewish Christians. And that's my conclusion, at least in this. If you want a map to give you a sense of this, uh, just to state them in order here, we had Pontus, which is up here, which is just over the top of northern Galatia. Galatia, of course, we're familiar with from our study, the book of Galatians. Cappadocia is out east, and then Asia, of course, and Bithynia. So this is spread all over modern-day Turkey, in uh, what we sometimes call Asia Minor, in these regions within that, and that's what we're dealing with. You get your bearing there, right? Let's talk about the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book, I think, is easily summarized with these two words, stand firm. So much of this is about standing firm. I grabbed that verbiage from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses, uh, verse 12, the bottom of verse 12. I've written you briefly, here's the purpose statement just stated for us, exhorting and declaring that it is true, the, the true grace of God, everything he said. So stand firm in it. I'm telling you these things because you need to hold on tight to it. And it's not hold on tight because of false teachers, although there's certainly false teachers discussed in the book, it's because there is suffering. So all of this, the two parts of this is you'd better stand firm. You better be solid in your faith, but it's, you should be solid in your faith because these circumstances that you're experiencing, one of the reasons you're being dispersed is because of persecution. And certainly as he writes from Rome, we assume we've got a lot of persecution going on at this particular point. It's a book all about that kind of suffering. Most of it is external. And by that, I mean, it's not because we're feeling bad or having bad things happen to us or we're sick. It's because we have external forces pressing against our commitment to Christ, as we'll see. First Peter chapter 5, verse 9, uh, speaking of the enemy's attack, certainly using human beings to do that, we're to resist him firm in your faith. There's the the idea, again, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. So there's the idea of us recognizing this book is a great encouragement. So when persecution breaks out in your life, this is a book to go to. I know some people have told me they've memorized the entire book, and that's a helpful thing. And it'll, it'll be a great word and anchor for you in the midst of struggle, the more of this book that you can get into your heart when hard times strike. All right, simplified outline, as simple as I could make it for you. The first part of chapter one is persecution getting it in perspective, as we'll see, and we'll talk about that a little bit. The next part of the 
bottom of chapter 1 is, is being holy. With that great statement, quoting the Old Testament line that's repeated throughout the Old Testament, and that is, we are to be holy because God is holy. I love the way it regards that. It's not in terms of our standing. It's be holy in all your behavior. We'll look at a little bit of that. Uh, you're God's people, which is one of the greatest statements throughout that second chapter, which helps us in the midst of our suffering. Remember who you are. Now, just because bad things are happening, just because God is allowing these things in your life, doesn't mean that you're not favored and very important and cherished by God, which is so important important to remember when you're struggling. And then this great section of submitting to authority, which you'd think, why? I don't understand why you put that in a book about hurting. Well, this is not a book just about, you know, bereavement or grief. It's about people that are suffering at the hands of authority, the, the government in particular, people that are in charge, carrying the Roman spears around. And so he's going to say something that's quite revolutionary, which is, and that is, you've got to keep your perspective on God's authority, even when they're evil. This is where you get that statement about honoring the king. And the king or the emperor, as some translations translated, is, of course, Nero at this particular point in New Testament history. And then again, suffer with a clear conscience or a good conscience. And we'll look at that as one of my favorite things, and we'll get to that in a minute. Chapter 4, Don't Be Shaken by Suffering. That's a great section. It's a wonderful chapter to, to commit to memory, read over many times. I, it's just the richest, one of the richest parts of the book. And then Humility in the Church in Chapter 5. So that's the best I could do, a seven-point outline to make it as truncated and small and terse as possible. Persecution perspective, be holy, you're God's people, submit to authority, suffer with a good conscience, which is a kind of suffering. If you're going to suffer, you want a clear conscience when you're in suffering. Don't be shaken by the suffering, hold firm, stand firm, and then humility. Certainly, persecution can do that to you, at least it should, humble us. Did you get all that? Almost? Great. Favorite things? course, if you've ever spent any time in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, you are blown away by the fact that we are supposed to, 1 Peter 1, 6, rejoice. Rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which he then goes on to compare to precious metals, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all a test. One of the words even used interchangeably throughout Peter's writings is that our pain and our trials are a test. It's a, it's a test. And we're going to look at the end of this life and God's going to say, how did you deal with all that trouble? And we hope that we're going to come through this well and be able to see that God is honored by our response to suffering. And so anyway, we should see it as something that at least even in the short term can affirm our faith. We can come out of this saying, my faith and my confidence and my trust in God is real. It's genuine. And these hard times have proved it. You don't have hard times. The roots don't go down very deep. So this is a great reminder of putting our suffering in perspective. Look at the end of this here. That was in chapter 1, chapter 5. After you've suffered a little while, and I say this because I want to show you that the suffering is not just like between here and the kingdom of God, we've got to go through many tribulations, as Paul said. It's not even like Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, take heart, I've overcome the world. That's all the eschaton, that's all the end, the eschatological things. In the end, it's going to be great when the kingdom of God comes and the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. But in this case, there's even a temporal sense to it. When Nero comes crashing down upon the church, there was going to be some relief. And there is that usually in our periods, in our waves of suffering and persecution. And so he says, after a, and after you've suffered a little while, I think temporal horizons are in view here. The God of all grace who has called you by his eternal glory in Christ. And though there is that end zone, we're going to go into the kingdom and all of our suffering is going to be gone. But I think even now, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And who can't testify to their Christian life doing this in terms of pain and suffering? And sometimes through the darkest valley of the shadow of death, God brings hope, God brings peace. The weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We're not talking about just the eschatological morning of the end times. We're talking about the way we get through this. And even we want to say, and I so often say, when suffering hits my life or my family, 
family or those close to me. You don't want to look back on that even in five years and say, I really handled it like, like a spoiled kid or I handled it like a kid throwing a tantrum. We'd like to be able to say we handled our suffering in a uh, God-honoring way because our faith was firm. We trusted God even in the midst of the hard times. We want to be like Job. When Job was able to see with his kids being buried, he said, the Bible says of him, he did not charge God with wrongdoing. And I think that's a big part of you exercising your faith, being able to say, God is a good God. He's on the throne, even though sin runs amok. And a lot of the things he could prevent, he doesn't prevent. And those bad things are continuing to happen to test us. So suffering is a welcome test. I know I'm not asking for God to hurt me this week, but when we ask God to grow us, we ask God to be wise, we ask God to prepare us for more ministry, we ask God to give us more faith, we ask God to give us more patience. He uses these difficult things to get us ready for greater things. Living in light of our evaluation, it's not taught on enough. I can't believe how many churches have never heard a sermon, really a sermon that goes deeply into the concept of our evaluation. Matter of fact, I preached probably one of the biggest churches I've ever preached on. I preached on uh, the evaluation coming, the Bema Seat Judgment, and had people come up and never heard it before. This is a well-taught megachurch. And I'm just thinking, you've been in church all these years, you've never heard anything about the Bema Seat Judgment, that we're going to have to have our lives evaluated. Well, it's everywhere. And in this passage, I don't think you could say it in a more forceful way that leads us to an uncomfortable place in the Christian life, which is exactly where we're supposed to be. Uncomfortable. There ought to be an uncomfortable sense of the fact that I'm in the middle of a Christian life that's going to be fully evaluated one day. He puts it this way. You're calling out to God as your father. This is a father who judges impartially. He's going to look at your deeds and your brother's deeds, and he's going to evaluate us all without partiality according to each one's deeds. Now, I'm calling him father. That means I'm a Christian, and yet my life's going to be evaluated. All my deeds are going to be evaluated. We are to conduct ourselves with, now here's the word, it's, uneasy, it's an uneasiness. Fear, if it's anything, is that sense of being, everything's just not copacetic and fine and my feet aren't up on the dashboard of life with the cruise control on and the stereo up saying everything's fine. I'm not even really worried about how I'm going to drive this thing. Uh, the Christian life ought to be lived with a sense of the old word in the old translation, circumspect. There's a sense in which I'm looking carefully and evaluating my life. And First Peter brings that out, I think, very clearly. During the exile, and that's helpful too. I'm not at home here. If I were at home, I could put my feet up on the dashboard. I could fit into the world. Everything would be fine. That's not how I live the Christian life. I live the Christian life in a alien territory to my Christianity, living in light of our future evaluation. Accept the right kind of persecution. I put it this way. We are supposed to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Think about that. The idea that I want my conduct to be honorable. That means that I don't want to be in any way some kind of person that the things that they don't like about me have nothing to do with obedience to God. In other words, I'm not acting in the way that I should act. I should be the best employee at my secular company when it comes to all the things that I should do right. I should be honorable. I should be trustworthy. I should have fiduciary trust. All those things that you want in an employee, I should be all that. The things that they may not like about me are things that I cannot change because I'm loyal to Christ. And uh, some people even sharing their faith. I've had calls and people that want to know, I, I want to share my faith. My company's told me not to. And I said, well, yeah, when you're on the clock, if they told you not to, then you can't. Don't sit there and blame that on God. Share your faith on your lunch break. Share your faith after work. Get your employees on the golf course or whatever and deal with it there. So, so often we get persecuted because we're not acting honorably or obediently under the authority that we have, which is so much of what this book is about, authority. First Peter chapter 4, another passage in the book, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Now, I hope you're not going to be suffering as a murderer or a thief, but some kind of evildoer, something that really is breaking a law or rule or ethos, some kind of, of moral of propriety. Don't be that or a meddler even. 
Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, that's a different kind of suffering. Well, then let him not be ashamed and let him glorify God in that name. I'm going to bring glory to God by doing what God asked me to do. And and there's a lot of things that, especially I can think of raising my kids and sending them to school. We send our kids to public school. And, of course, we're discipling our kids and training our kids, sending them into that environment. And, you know, they 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 can be a real pain in the neck for the teachers and their classmates that has nothing to do with our standards. They can take our standards and tweak them in a way that makes them just an unacceptable or at least an abrasive bunch of people on their campuses. We've said, no, we want you to be as, as compliant as you can in areas that you can be compliant. And in the areas where you shouldn't be compliant, of course, we want you to stand out and go to the wall for that. And that's a kind of distinction between persecution, which I think some people revel in the fact that they're, you know, suffering for Christ when really they're just suffering as, as a dishonorable meddler in many cases. So accept the right kind of persecution. And I think that's the first thing I do when people say, I'm having a hard time at work. I'm having a hard time in my marriage. I'm having a hard time in this situation or this relationship. I want to find out, is this really about your Christianity? They come to me when they think it's about their Christianity. And sometimes I got to figure out as I unpack the situation, it may not be about their Christianity. It's about them not being a very wise person in their relationships or the decisions that they make. Number four, I told you a lot of this book is about authority, a sincere respect for authority. It goes through all the levels under which we are under authority, and we're all under authority. All of us are under authority. And in that authority, we better have a sincere respect for that. Look at this. This is big. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Leave my kids with a babysitter when they were young. I say, you better obey that babysitter. Your babysitter wants to smoke pot with you, right? I want you to disobey. Whatever it is that they they want you to rob a bank tonight, don't do it. You know that what our rules are. But whatever the things are that have nothing to do with the things that we've taught you are biblical and right, you be compliant. You be subject to their authority. And it may be ridiculous in your mind. But you do it for my sake as a parent. And that's the way it is here. For the Lord's sake, I'm going to be in submission to leadership. And so often, whatever that situation is, even if it seems unreasonable, I should do it. And here's the translation that we have. I reckon this in, uh, at least in my verbal recitation of it is in another translation. But anyway, it translates it here, emperor. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and, and to the praise of those who do good. And you can throw a flag on the play and say, well, they're not doing that all the time. Well, that's fine. They know that. This is Nero's imperial palace. And so it was in a lot of other places where we're called to obey leaders, whether it's even an un- unreasonable master and I'm a slave. And it gets into all the other levels. Likewise, wives, look at this, be subject to your husband so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they're not doing what they should. And some people say, well, I would do this at work for my company or my boss if they were just more honorable. And all I'm saying is that's not the kind of quid pro quo we're ever allowed to have in scripture. I'm supposed to say I'm submissive in everything I can be submissive in until I'm starting to submit to you in contrast to Christ. In other words, if there's something that you're asking me to do that now is going to violate my commitment to Christ, I can't do that. And some people get that confused. They, I, I, I want to share my faith at 2 o'clock in the afternoon at work. If your boss says you can't, you can't. But do it at 5.30 in the afternoon. There's a difference there. And so it is even here in that relationship as we go through all the different levels of authority. And here he says it should be your honorable conduct, even in a marriage where you've got an unreasonable, disobedient husband. So that they may be one without a word. And this is what the book's about, conduct. In this case, the conduct of their wives. And so a sincere respect for authority. And many of you here, I know, have people that you think are unreasonable over you in authority. And you need to recognize God would have you in your heart, from your heart, learn to respect them. 
even if you don't like them, even if there's problems that you can point out and say, well, they're unbiblical, great. And I'm going to obey them. I'm going to submit to them. I'm going to try to sincerely give them honor, even in their disobedience. I'm not going to encourage it. I'm not going to cheer them on, and I'm not going to follow their example. But the only time I really become someone who has to be a dissenter, or I have to be someone who is is, is engaging in, in, as it's called in government, at least civil disobedience, it's when I am being forced to disobey God's law. Number five, evidence of faith in suffering. Couldn't be clearer here. He, Christ, committed no sin, neither was there any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. See, that really gets back to living under authority. Remember when he, Pilate says, I have the authority to let you go. I have the authority to crucify you. And Christ said, well, you wouldn't have any authority if God didn't give it to you. That may seem like a snarky comment from Christ, but it's helpful for us. And that is, he does have authority over him right there. As a matter of fact, he's about to make a decision that sends him to the cross. But the point is, he's entrusting himself ultimately to God who judges justly. And so it is for you. Your marriage isn't what you want. Your boss isn't what you want. Your situation, your you know, community with your homeowners association, not what you want. I'm just saying, God is a God who wants us to sincerely respect and submit to, to authority in our lives, whatever that authority might be for the Lord's sake. And we ought to show our faith like Christ showed his faith in the fact that I trust God. God is going to work this out. God is the boss of my bosses, and I'm going to trust him to see everything. He's observing everything. His eyes are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And we trust him in that. First Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God. Here it is again. Same word. Entrust. There's the idea. Their souls to a faithful creator. He's always going to be faithful. And I'm just going to keep doing good. Whatever that is. And now some people say that with gritting their teeth instead of a sincere respect for authority and doing what's right. But we need our hearts to be at peace before God. Be who you ought to be with good behavior and trust yourself to God. God is faithful. Keep doing the right thing, even if you are a Roman Christian and being persecuted by your government. The call to apologetics is certainly one of my favorite things in the book. We talk about this word. We get the word apologetics from a transliteration in this passage. If you should suffer for righteousness sake, think about this now, you'll be blessed. That's the context throughout the book. Have no fear of them, these people that are authorities over you wanting to persecute you, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. So I know he's my ultimate authority. I want to please him. I'm going to entrust my soul to him. But I'm always going to be prepared. If there is an opportunity, if I need to now, this is the idea, to make a defense. Apo, Greek preposition, away from logia, a statement or a charge. There is a charge that they give us. And they say, you're bad because of your belief system. You're bad because you're whatever, narrow-minded, bigoted, whatever it is. I now want to take that charge and get it away from me. That's a verbal defense. I'm making a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why do you continue to push against the grain of culture or the mores of our society? Why do you do that? That opportunity comes with that kind of question. I want to defend why I do that. And yet I want to do it. Not the way that they accuse us with vitriol and anger. I want to do it with gentleness and respect. And again, that underlies one of the main points in the book, and that is you ought to learn to sincerely respect authority. Which today, I guess it's good for me to underscore that because we live in a culture, they're not good at respecting authority. Have you noticed that? Certainly not in Western culture. The call to apologetics. Let's do another one. I put it this way. The lack of persecution would be surprising. Don't, don't tell the prosperity gospel preachers this because they don't, maybe you should tell them this, but they're not listening. They think Christian life done right, no suffering. The Bible says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, that we should never be surprised when there is not just suffering, but a fiery trial, something very painful when it comes upon you to test you. We already learned in chapter 1, that's what it is, the test of our faith. Not to mention, it gets a lot of good things done in our lives and the lives of people around us. God's got a plan for all this. As though, here it is, some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange. 
But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I want to see my suffering like the Apostle Paul sees his suffering, and that is I'm honored and privileged to be able to be like Christ in this. Christ was reviled. Christ suffered. I'm going to suffer. I recognize that. And to rejoice in that may be hard, but that's the reality of this text. I worded that very carefully. The lack of persecution would be surprising if a lot of Christians from a lot of other places and a lot of other times, and maybe just different places and not different times, were to see us. And we sit around singing, thinking, I want to go to church. I want to take the sermons, go home. And I only want the sermons and the things I hear and the things I adhere to and the things that I am supposed to follow. I only want them to improve my life, make my life more comfortable, make it more convenient, make it happier. They would be shocked at that. They wouldn't get it. They would recognize that that we're out of step, completely out of step with the biblical principle. The more you grow in the faith, the more you're going to, going to have difficulty and pushback as you interact with the world. Again, First Peter chapter 4, the beginning of the chapter said this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself, prepare yourself, get ready with the same way of thinking that I am going to suffer in my flesh, in my humanity, in my body, in the society in which I live. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? The idea of I am someone who's decided, this is repentance, to turn from sin to God. God is completely countercultural to our sinful fallen world. So I've now resolved to follow Christ, to turn from sin. That means I'm suffering. Whoever has suffered in the flesh, if you're suffering in the flesh, that's a sign, that's a proof, that's a, an example, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, that you're God's people. You've ceased from sin, at least this way. We put it this way. It may not be ceased from sin completely, but I resolve to it. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer, there's the purpose, no longer. This is the resolve for human passions, but for the will of God. You want to live for the will of God. If that's your resolve, you're going to suffer. And if Christ suffered and he was the godliest person ever, God in the flesh, then we're going to suffer. And that's the picture of it. The lack of persecution would be surprising. Let me drive it home one more verse. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, they are described as being dispersed all over Asia Minor. And we assume that's because of persecution, because that's the theme of the book. But he's reminding us that we're sojourners and exiles. This has a double meaning to it, right? The double entendre. You may be traveling if it's a literal statement of your dispersion. And clearly it is, because he's describing people from all these different places in Asia Minor. But he says, you really are exiles, not just because you don't live in your hometown anymore, because the government is cracking down on your Christianity. You really are an exile and a sojourner in this world. So you are to realize that you've got a battle. You're supposed to now abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. By the time we get to the end of the book, and I didn't add that, you can see you've got the enemy, you've got the world, you've got the government, you've got authority, and here you've even got a war going on in the impulses of your humanity. That doesn't set you up for a, for a happy life. Read some A.W. Tozer this week and remind yourself, as he so often reminded us in his writings, that, listen, if you're wanting peace and happiness and joy and all those things, you're going to get a taste of those, clearly. But it may be in stocks in a dungeon in Philippi. It's going to be something that if you want the complete, holistic kind of, of, of happiness, well, you're going to have to wait for another time. We've got too many things that are pushing against Christianity. If you're not suffering, that's what's surprising. And I preached that message here. I remember coming to South Orange County many years ago, preached that message. We live in a nice area. We live in a relatively peaceful time. This is before the homosexual revolution and all the rest that was going on, at least in the way that it, that it is now. People were shocked. And, and, and people say, I can't handle the preaching about us living for Christ and suffering. I remember someone saying, I just never happened to me. I said, well, then let's sit down. Let's disciple you. Have someone disciple you. And we will get to the place in recognizing that if there's no suffering or persecution in your life, something's probably weak or atrophied in your Christian life. All right, let me give one last one here. 
I know this is too many, but here it is. Eight. First Peter chapter five, verse two. Maybe this is more for me or for you. If you're in some kind of ministry that God has called you to, we are to shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, exercising oversight. Here's the point. Not under compulsion, but willingly. I don't know how many times my mind has come back to that. What God would want for me, as first Corinthians nine says, is not to preach the gospel, in my case, out of compulsion, but to do it joyfully and willingly. In this case, I should do it as God would have you. In other words, I know God wants me to do my work, not as I got to do it, but I get to do it. And that is something that we need to work on in our attitude. And of course, not for shameful gain, because that may be something you say, well, that kind of softens the blow of this, of this duty, but do it eagerly. Eager, willing ministry. When I call you to do anything, if it's, if it's something God is using, a sermon or a call, or someone puts a finger in your chest, say, we need you for this ministry. If you sense that's what God wants you to do, do it willingly. Seek to find a kind of willingness, or as this passage says, eagerness to do it and not say, well, I guess if I'm supposed to do it, I'll do it. We do things out of duty. I understand that. There are times we do things out of duty. Not every Sunday morning I get up and want to come preach. You understand that. We do it out of duty. But I'd like to get to the place between the time I wake up and the time I step onto the campus to be able to have that heart that says, I want to do this because I want to do this. I'm going to do this and try and tell my volition to, to get going as uh, we see throughout the scripture, right? Saying to myself some things, it's going to get me to do this, not because I have to, but I want to get to the place to do it because I want to. All right, that's helpful for me. Maybe that's helpful for you. Second Peter, three chapters, 61 verses, 1,099 words. Three chapters, 61 verses, just one word shy of 1,100 words in the Greek New Testament in Second Peter. This book was disputed early on in part because, well, we'll see. It's not for content. I guess I'm supposed to say that. Not because of the content, but because of the glut of pseudepigraphal works. Peter, remember, is the first pastor of the big growing church with thousands of people in it. He is one who is given so much responsibility that he becomes the focal point in terms of the drama of the first nine chapters, ten chapters of the book of Acts. Everyone would be very interested to hear what Peter thinks, what Peter has to say. Of course, Paul takes over the second half of the book of Acts as the focus, and then, of course, everyone's interested in what Paul has to say. But because Peter is such an important figure, there were a lot of works that people were trying to put out there and speaking for Peter. And because of the glut and so many pseudepigraphal works, that's what pseudo, false, pigrapha, to write false writings, writings that were falsely attributed to Peter, that there was some, there was some reluctance to accept Second Peter as, as a legitimate book early on. Yeah, a lot of critics, a lot of controversy regarding this book. Uh, there's not a lot of early church fathers quoting it. Uh, yeah, maybe the most disputed book of the New Testament, maybe save the book of Revelation. But but anyway, the author is stated up front, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It's easy to throw a name on it, but it's stated very clearly. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, I think you can study the background enough of the book of Second Peter and its background to know that, uh, sure enough, there is adequate reason, both in terms of its connection to First Peter, uh, the connections and the inferences that are made in within the book, pointing back to Peter's ministry, that this is not a work a pseudepigraphal work, a falsely attributed book to Peter, but it is in fact our second epistle from Peter. And I say not for content. And by that, I mean, when we talk about canonical issues, we talk about external evidence, we talk about internal evidence. External evidence is what's lacking. We don't have enough people seeming to say this early on that we'd want to. Because one of the things in our bibliology series we look for is the acceptance of the book when it was written. Did the people of God accept it? And that was paltry, at least at the very beginning. But the internal evidence, there was nothing internally that, I mean, people can find anything to complain about, but it wasn't the internal concerns that people had with the book. The date of the book, likely written from Rome 
just before his martyrdom, just like we saw in 1 Peter from Rome. Doesn't state it outright in this book, but we know enough about his martyrdom. And by the way, I, I get that from this passage, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. He says, I think it, it's right as long as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminders, since I know that the putting off of my body, which is an interesting way to describe your death, which is exactly what death is. If you did read my book on 10 things people get wrong about heaven, hell, and the afterlife, or 10 mistakes, I guess, it's the, it's the title of the book I will never remember and never do remember what exactly the title is, but the 10 things book, I call it. I spent a lot of time trying to, about, trying to talk about what death is, and this is one of the passages I utilize among many others others talk about that's what it is when your spirit separates from your body when the software and hardware take a a split in the road that is that is death anyway he puts it that way but that's not my point here my point here is he knows he's about to die he says i know it's going to be soon as our lord jesus christ has made clear to me therefore he says i want to make every effort so that after my departure after my death you may be able at any time to recall these things so i'm giving you this kind of like paul had said is a safeguard for you it's easy for me to repeat it paul said but in this case peter says i know i'm going to die soon Put it this way in your mind. I hope you think of, as the book we've described in Second Timothy, Paul is giving his final kind of locker room talk, sending out this conversation. I guess I mean that in the best sense in terms of the coach, not the players. But the locker room briefing to say, you're going to go out there, do this, you're going to do this without me. As I said in the purpose of that book, seeing Christianity or the church beyond the Apostle Paul without me. This is the same thing. Second Peter should be viewed as Second Timothy. It is, it is Peter's Second Timothy. That's the way to view the book. So when did, he, when did he get martyred? We said, I think our date was 68 on the other slide. That's where we put the book before. So we'll put this at 67. So sometime in that range after First Peter, after Nero's persecution, but before his death. And that's rough and dirty a year or two. We might be off there. And of course, if you did read the book or done any study, the tradition is that he was martyred in Rome upside down. And that was a pretty firm tradition. I don't know what the report card that Lifton gave it in his book, if you did get that. I don't remember. The recipients, very generally stated in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, second half, those who have obtained, it's from Peter, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, which is interesting because he's like the mega pastor, not only that, the apostle, he's the big wig in the church, he's been it for years. He's saying their faith gives them the same standing that we have. That concept, at least in Baptistic circles, we like to call the priest or the believer. You have as much access to God as I do. You may not have as much maturity or as much knowledge, but I just love the way he says that. So that's a pretty broad statement. It's a very general statement. You get it not by your knowledge, not by your godliness, not by your ethics, but by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So very broadly stated. Likely, we would believe just by the way you compare First and Second Peter, it seems like the same group as First Peter. In that way, it shows a lot of parallels to First and Second Timothy. Different purpose, different reason, different recipient, obviously. But Paul writes First Timothy, then he writes Second Timothy as his final words to Timothy. Same thing here. Peter writes to these scattered Christians, and then he writes Second Timothy, which is kind of, okay, this is my last time I'm about to die. I'm going to give you this information that you need to have. So that's the re- recipients. The purpose, of course, I've basically given it away there. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, I wanted to remind you of these qualities so that through them you can be established in the truth that you have. Get this truth, get, get rooted in it, stand firm in it. I think that as long as right in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body is soon, as the Lord made clear to me, so I'll make every effort after my departure you can be able to recall these things. So there's the idea again, and the purpose is clearly stated. I want you to stand firm in these things. I'm about to go away. I'm going to go over things you know. I've written to these. I've preached these things to you. I've counseled you these in these things. So here it goes. And I always take a special interest in Second Timothy because I view it that way. And you should also take the same kind of view of Second Peter, 
as you think about Peter saying, okay, here it is. Some things I need to double down on and highlight as it relates to your life without me. Simplified outline, as simple as I could make it. Chapter one, affirm your calling. Chapter two, the gist of it, so much of it, stand firm against what? False teachers, a lot of bad teaching out there. Chapter three, one of my favorite chapters, Christ is coming. That's a great section. So very simple outline. Affirm your calling, beware of false teachers, be motivated by the fact that that Christ is coming. You can be sure of it. He's batting a thousand when it comes to his promises. So Christ is coming. There's your simplified outline. Did you get all that? Pretty much. Favorite things. I don't know if you remember the, what did we call them? The equipping conferences that we've done. But if you haven't read the ambitious, I'm sorry, yeah, ambitious fate, no, aggressive sanctification, there you go, aggressivesanctification.com, if you can figure out how to spell aggressive, because it took me a while to keep spelling that right, aggressivesanctification.com in a written form, and I responded to uh, Tuli and Tavigian's book that became a bestseller that a bunch of our young people in our church started to read and quote and loved, and they slept with, you know, a copy of it under their pillow, and it got to be ridiculous, where I said, this is, this is tripe, it's hogwash, it's theological nonsense. And so I wrote a review, and if you want to go look at it online, you'll see people calling me a long litany of terrible names because I dared to write against this book that was so popular. And, you know, I, I don't know why I was all by myself in this early on. Jay Adams had me write an uh, review in his journal for it, and I, I just don't know why everyone didn't get, get this earlier. I, I think conservatives finally got around to addressing this, but the thing of the book basically was there shouldn't be any effort in your spiritual growth. As Tullian said, that's performanceism. That's wrong. Well, of course, that theology got him nowhere, if you know where that is, but the idea of even calling people out on the fact, I think particularly this millennial generation and the younger generation, Gen X guys, we, we want a Christianity where we can kind of you know eat pizza in the basement and play Xbox or something. It, we, we want something easier than getting a job and moving out and paying the rent and getting insurance. That's a kind of, of Christian life that God would want from us. And it's effort. It's hard work. Effort is real effort. It's work. I quoted J.C. Ryle's book a lot during that period, his book on holiness, to describe the distinction between justification and sanctification. I've already dealt with that in, cert- in this survey. But this passage is one of many. But this one in particular, I remember preaching on and talking about much when that book came out. And I tried to respond to it and took so much heat for responding to it. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Look at how it's put. This, for this very reason, after all these things he said about the promises of God, the goodness of God, make every effort to supplement your faith which number one would be heresy in those circles. Supplement your faith with what? And he goes on to this long list of things. With virtue, with virtue knowledge, and it goes on all those things that it speaks of in terms of Christian virtue, which are expressions of our sanctification. They're fruit of our sanctification. Yeah, I I guess I just underscore that one phrase. Make every effort. Do all that you can. Effort is effort. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 4, when it speaks of the fact that bodily training is of little value. There's the illustration of of working out physical training. It starts this way though. Train yourself for godliness. The word we get gymnasium from in Greek, the transliteration of the Greek word. Go to the gym in your Christian life, which no one really wants to do, right? If they don't want to work hard, lazy people don't want to go to the gym. And certainly lazy people don't want to go to a church that's going to say, make every effort in your sanctification. And it's not because you want to do this when you make any progress in the Christian life, which was the charge. People said, that's what you guys are doing. You're trying to perform. You're trying to stay in the Christian life. You didn't do anything to get into the Christian life. Can't do anything to stay in the Christian life. No one said we did. So if you haven't read those reviews and, and we've even turned it into a book, I think is in our bookstore. It's a booklet. It's very small, but I took all those vlogs. I think I wrote about 10 or 11 or 12 vlogs, which were somewhat lengthy, at least for a vlog, 
I would recommend. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go and read aggressivesanctification.com and those 10 plus entries and articles that I wrote. And I think you'll find that even though that book, I would hope, isn't selling very well anymore, that you would see that that thinking is all over the place, particularly among a lot of young Christians in our society. You've heard me on, if you've been around companies, you've heard me on that soapbox many times. I'm sorry if you're new. It's something to look out for. Fruit is assurance. In the book, that's the good news. Fruit is assurance. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. For if these qualities are yours, same passage, and they're increasing, then they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities, if you don't have these things growing, if you don't see these evidences of your faith, you're nearsighted, you're blind. That's how nearsighted you are. You've forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. There's another expression of effort. To confirm your calling and election. If you practice these things, you'll never fail. That concept of fruit in the Christian life is the thing that brings you assurance. People have all kinds of problems with that. Matter of fact, there's a whole bookshelf full of books on my, in my library about the concept of assurance. To try and understand that and try and get around some of the, the concerns and landmines of today's very sensitive people regarding not wanting to put any effort into the Christian life, they, they write very interesting books about assurance. But you want to write a book that's based on the Bible. The Bible says your fruit, your changed life is the thing that makes you be able to get up in the morning and say, I can see the evidence of my faith. I'm a Christian. And that's what this book is so much about. First Peter, certainly in the first part of the book. Now, you remember authority was the theme in the first book. In this book, when he talks about false teachers and he's guarding them against false teachers in chapter 2, and I'll just reference verse 10, 12, and 18 here, he speaks of the false teachers of people that, look at this now, despise authority. Right? That was the important thing that he was trying to teach them. As you suffer, keep being obedient to authority. Well, there were those that didn't want to be submissive, genuinely, sincerely respectful of authority. Well, they were like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming here's an expression of it, about matters of which they are ignorant. For they speak, it says, loud boasts of folly, and they entice, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping, those who live in error. They're in our churches, they're among us, but they're very disdaining, uh, dismissive of authority. And I know you think, well, that's really odd because it seems like the leaders in the church are very, very authoritative. No, no, no. And I can tell you this because I've met a lot of bigwig Christians and, and people that I think you think are like, wow, those guys are just amazing. And they are amazing. And I stand in great respect of these people. But when I get them and sit them down at a meal or dinner or I deal with them, these are humble people. And they're bold and they're authoritative in the pulpit. They're bold and authoritative in their, in their books. But you get them one-on-one and you talk with these folks. I, I got to tell you, the ones I think that you would say are real, genuine, godly leaders in even Christianity across the board, uh, these are humble men. They're not authoritarian. There's a distinction you might want to make. They're authoritative, certainly, because they preach the word. And the Bible says you ought to preach it. without. Don't let anybody disregard you. But as people, we're not authoritarian. We're bold, but we're not prideful. We're not arrogant. And I think that's a distinction. I think the best leaders, and I think the people God puts in leadership are usually people that know how to follow. They know how to submit to authority. They know how to live under authority. And those are the, those are the guys that God will put in. I mean, think of David, right, even. Uh, that was the idea. You take a guy like Saul, and, and then you compare him to a guy like David. And, you know, David's got his problems. I understand that. Like every godly leader I know has problems. But the bottom line is they're not these kinds of people despising authority. You may think they do because they teach against false doctrine. Like when I wrote that review, just thinking of Tully and Tavigian's book, when I wrote against that uh, book, I mean, I wrote passionately because of what the Bible has to say. And a lot of people, arrogant, nonsense, Pharisee. You read the Yelp reviews every now and then that come up about me. But the idea is, I can tell you, that is 
not me to despise authority. I, I respect authority. I'm, I'm a good follower when it comes to those things. And I don't want to be auto, autobiographical. But I will say the people I know, just recently hanging out with some big wigs in Christianity, super duper humble. They, they, they are not these guys. They're not despising authority. They're not blaspheming about matters they don't, they're ignorant of. They don't speak authoritatively until they understand what they're talking about. They're not boasting loud, speaking about loud boasts of folly as it's put here. All right. The delay of Christ, I preach this all the time. I don't need to underscore this more than just putting it up here. I quote it all the time. You know, talk about favorite things. If you don't, Pastor Mike, if you don't put Second Peter chapter 3 down as one of your favorite things, you're, you're blind, right? Okay, yes, right. I know. That's, this passage is quoted often from this platform. Christ has not come back yet. I preached it this weekend because he's kind, he's patient, he's, he's gracious, he's merciful. Why? Because he wants people to come to repentance. Not slow. He's patient, not wishing any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. Or to put it in the words of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, as Peter quotes Paul here or references Paul, he said, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Opportunity for salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote according to the wisdom given him. And that's how they view each other. You think of that. Peter, big pastor. Paul, the second half of the book of Acts. And, and I got, look what God is doing through him. Look at what God has given him, that wisdom. That just goes back to number three on, on our list. But the delay of Christ is evangelism. You know that. That's the fourth thing and the last thing in this book. Pressing on. Jude, length, one chapter, 25 verses, 461 words. This is the first book we've reached, I think, in our study that's one chapter. Is that right? Okay. Not the shortest one. We're going to see. Say it again. Philemon. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Philemon. And Philemon had how many words as you look back in your notes? More than this, right? Yeah, maybe. Wow, I don't know. I started that sentence, but I think so. You're looking it up feverishly. How many words in Philemon? You've not been taking notes. You've been doodling the whole time. I thought you were taking notes, some of you. 335. So that was shorter. Okay, there you go. Great. I should have said that then, but I'll say it now. When you quote, and I think this is good whenever you're referencing things, you don't have to put Jude 1 colon 1 to say verse 1. If you're in a book, Philemon, Jude, Second John, Third John, we just write the word or the abbreviation of the word that's the name of the book and then the number. And then you see me do A and B all the time, right? A, first half of the verse, B, second half of the verse. If you're dealing with three parts of the verse, A, B, C, four parts of the verse, A, B, C, D, that's fine. Matter of fact, I remember preaching through Second Peter chapter 1 and these sermons that came out of that section, some verses have four or five virtues. I could have A, B, C, D, E, that's fine. And then other things you should know. CP before a verse is what? To compare. CF is what? A CF period before a verse is what? Cross-reference, very good. How about an F after a number? If I said Jude 1, A, and then F period is what? The following verse. If it's FF, what? The following verses. All right, that's helpful. As you read commentaries or biblical books. I don't know why I said that. Other than to say Jude 1 is obviously the right way to put the reference down. Your, even your software program may not do that depending on how you've structured Logos. For instance, in the copy verse feature or whatever software you use, it may still put Jude 1 colon 1 depending on how it's programmed. Which, by the way, you can customize, which you should customize, but that's a different lecture. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, which is an interesting way to say it. Jude, by the way, is the, is the Hebrew name Judah, the same word. Judah, one of the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament. But Jude is another way to say it. James's brother. Now, that's how he's described as James' brother. Now, there were two prominent James in the Bible, right? You had the apostle, James, and you had the author of James, which we said was not the James of, of the New Testament. But he was a leader in the church. Remember that? And that leader in the church, we had even said, as we studied about that James, is we identified him as who? Do you remember? Brother of Christ. Half-brother of Christ. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Is not this carpenter's son? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Judas or Judah? Judas or Jude? Same, Same name. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. James, the beginning of the list, the oldest brother... 
after Christ, of course. Judas, the youngest, always listed in terms of descending order and age chronologically, these two become leaders in the church. And we see that throughout the book of Acts. So when you see James early on in the book, he gets martyred really early, and we talked about that. And then we talked about James, Jesus's brother. All right, so we're saying that this is Jude, Jesus's half-brother, Judas or Judah. The date? Well, I know this, Jude quotes Second Peter, and again, we could establish much more evidence for every one of these. We're trying to move through this quickly. But if we're clear about Second Peter's date, which I think we are, Jude 17 and 18, just to give you that quote. Again, we don't need one colon before it. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, Peter is the apostle of Jesus Christ. As they said to you, quote, exact quote, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. He's quoting Second Peter. So we know when Second Peter is. We've made a date there. So we've got a terminus on that in terms of the date that starts at it, at least, I should say. And then, and here's something new, and I've revised this from the chart. And so I, I, I'm sorry, I stand corrected on this. I think, at least I'm persuaded in my study this week. There's no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem, which I believe, and I, I've always believed that. But I think there's enough reference to the Jewish people in this book. There's enough Jewish overtones in this book where I've taken the date that was on your chart that used to be 75, and I've moved it up to 68 because of my study this week. So that's my guess. And certainly I have plenty of New Testament scholars that agree, and there's others that don't. And I was in the camp before and putting it into the 70s. But if Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and we have the destruction of Jerusalem then, then I'm going to put this before that. So note the revised date. I'm no longer, at least on the chart, as I teach this again in the future, I will change the chart to not have next Second Peter 75. So you might want to go back if you've got that chart, if you want to trust my research here and put 68 next to it. Good enough? Everyone understand that, what I was saying there? All right. Recipient stated very generally to those who are called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ. Again, these are called the Catholic epistles or the general epistles, not because they have anything to do with Roman Catholicism, but because they're general, general, general. Well, here again, it's very, very general to those who are called. Well, that's me beloved in God, the father and kept in Christ Jesus. Well, I wasn't alive in the first century, but anyone who was called great, they were a recipient of this. Now Jude obviously had some specific people in mind, but he wrote it as broadly and addressed it as broadly as possible. He gave no ethnic, no geographic statements. Nothing helps us identify it. It's all speculation. In your study Bibles, all you're doing is guessing at who these folks are. We don't know. You can sometimes read the data and say, well, what were they dealing with? Well, we'll talk about the errors they were dealing with, uh, he was dealing with, and the people were dealing with, but we don't know who these folks were. Broadly, broadly stated. The purpose of the book, though, is pretty clear. Jude verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I would love to hear him write that book. And that's kind of something when you read that, think, wow, I wonder what that book would look like. We don't know. Because he said it's necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to make any comparisons to myself and Jude, but I may have wanted to come up with a great set of articles that dealt with our Christianity, but because I saw something attacking the concept of grace and turning it into a license to sin, to pervert the grace of God into something that makes me put my feet up on the dashboard and, and careen into the ditch, then I'm going to have to stop and write some other stuff. And that's what the Jude did here. And again, I don't mean to make the comparison, but I just did. I'm not trying to say I'm an apostle, obviously, or write the New Testament book. But the point is you might set out to do something more positive and proactive in terms of great edifying truths about salvation. But instead, this book is saying we got problems and we got to fix those problems. So we're dealing again with false teaching. I didn't put it on the slide, but that's the idea. There's false teaching needs to be corrected. We need to guard the church. Simplified outline. Protect sound doctrine. Verses one through four. God is going to punish 
false teachers. And I shouldn't say it the way I just said it. I should say it the way I put it on the overhead. God punishes false teachers because he goes back historically to certainly give that sense of promise to the fact that he's going to destroy and punish these false teachers because look at how he's done it in the past. Therefore, the book ends, be vigilant, be careful, be on guard. Don't trust everyone who comes with a Jesus t-shirt, has a Bible in their hand and wants to give you a lesson about Christ. You've got to be very, very careful. That's what Jude is all about. Protect sound doctrine. God's going to punish them for this doctrinal error. You've got to be very vigilant and careful. Did you get all that? Yes? Okay. Favorite things. Can't ignore false teaching. I just said that at the beginning of the book. I'd like to write this. I can't write this. Even though you'd like to do something else, when you see danger and a threat and the church is buying that threat, that's when you've got to get involved. There's a lot of false teaching that I'm not even going to worry about as a shepherd of this church because I'm not seeing it invade our church. Maybe one or two people, and I still can deal with that with the pastoral staff or a team or I can get involved. But when it starts to invade a group or a block of people, we've got to stop and deal with that one way or another. And that is... Some of the ways we've dealt with the equip conference is trying to respond to those threats. And the most, I think, one that caused the most pushback, had people leave our church over it, was that one on aggressive sanctification. But we can't ignore it. If it's really threatening people's spiritual lives, we've got to deal with it. And that's true for you. Your marriage, your kids, your friends, people you go hang out with or you're, you know, do whatever, go to dinner with. If there's stuff that's starting to affect their Christian life and you know it's false teaching... Uh, you've got to deal with it. I get those questions almost every week. Had someone just this last weekend. My friend's into this kind of doctrine, this kind of teaching. What do I do? You've got to address it because that kind of teaching is aberrant enough to affect their Christian life in a major way. The other thing, Jude verse 4, is very subtle, and I've already quoted this verse, but certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in unnoticed. They don't even see the problem, which, by the way, you can see, as even though I've illustrated with that one problem of that book, uh, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, which I never even gave the title, but that was it. It sparked a bunch of other books by him and others in that field. Give Him Grace by Fitzpatrick. There were a lot of other writers that followed this descent into this nonsense in my mind, but that concept is going to get pushed back because no one notices that it's a problem. And again, I'm not here to create controversy by pointing out false doctrine where it's not a threat to the church, but when it becomes a threat to the church, or in your case, when it comes a threat to your ministry or to your friends or your circle or your family, right, you're going to risk people saying you're a snob, you're narrow-minded, you're legalistic, you're a Pharisee, you're, you're a naysayer, you're a heresy hunter. They're going to call you lots of names because to them it's not noticed. I don't see the problem. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. But in the end, which is where he goes next in this, in this little book, this little letter, they're going to be punished. We've got to deal with this. So false teachers are subtle. They don't come in saying, let's go worship Satan tonight. That would be easy for us to go say, hey, that's wrong. But they don't do that. And in a bumper sticker theology land that we live in now, and I don't mean land in terms of Orange County, the period in which we live, this is getting increasingly difficult to have people say, no, well, you're going to have to think more than two minutes on this to realize this is insidious. And these folks are saying something that perverts a biblical doctrine that's very important for us to protect. Yeah, it's hard in our day. People aren't used to even, I mean, if, if it has Jesus on the label, we're good with that, for most people at least. All right, thirdly, quotations are not wholesale endorsements. I think this is helpful. One of the things that people always ask me about is the quotation here in Jude, verses 17 and 18. It says, remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffing, people following their own ungodly passions. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, 
Quotations are not wholesale endorsements. I wanted you to look at verse 14. It was also about these, these false teachers, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, the book of Enoch. You've heard of the book of Enoch. I think most of us 10 years ago never heard, I mean, had heard of it because I went to Bible school and seminary, but most people hadn't heard of this book. Now it seems like everyone's heard of the book of Enoch. Actually, it was a series of books. There's several collections within the book of Enoch. But the point is, people see that. I had a call this week on, on the Bible Answer Show about, hey, what should we accept the book of Enoch because it's quoted in the New Testament? Let me remind you that quotations are not wholesale endorsements. And again, I don't want to compare biblical writers to pastors, but I hope you recognize your pastor quotes a lot of people that he's not giving a wholesale endorsement to everything that they say. Winston Churchill said a lot of pithy things that many people have repeated. We're not endorsing his, his life or everything that he says. Even C.S. Lewis or people like that, masterful with the English language as a professor at, at Oxford in English, lit, but doesn't mean that his theology is spot on. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we go through a lot of people that we quote and we're not giving wholesale endorsements. The book of Enoch's filled with a lot of craziness. If you read the book of Enoch, which again, you've got to figure out which book. It's a collection of books. Very popular in the intertestamental period. A lot of fanciful, crazy things in it. Now, there are some things, though, that are repeatable. And I give you other examples. We came across the one in Titus chapter 1. When, and remember this, this is one of the Cretan prophets of their own has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, Paul says. So he's quoting him positively. But he's not saying that the poets of Crete are to be revered as canonical. Or in Acts 17, when Paul quotes two philosophers, a Stoic philosopher and another poet from the intertestamental period. Actually, he's back all the way to the 600 BC. Remember that we should seek God. Perhaps we'll find our way toward him. Yet he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's a quotation from, from a 5th, 6th century BC poet. Or when then he goes on to say, and some of your own poets have said, as he speaks to the Athenians in Athens, he says, for we are indeed his offspring. That's the second quote. That's from a Stoic philosopher. So he's not giving credence to Stoicism. He's not trying to say everything that this 6th century BC poet has said is, is gospel truth. So I'm not going to go and buy the book of Enoch. Well, I don't have to. I have several copies of it. But I wouldn't want to say, now I'm going to stick it as the 67th book of the Bible simply because it's quoted favorably here. And, and I'm just saying, there's lots of things that are quoted favorably. Anyway, you get the point. Quotations are not wholesale endorsements. And there are people that come to church, and I tell you, I've had more than my share in the last 30 years. If I quote anyone, if they, they'll meet me at the door or they'll write me that week and say, here's something that person said that you quoted that's unbiblical. And I'll say, good for you. You could have spent all that time, by the way, doing something else and more productive and profitable. I recognize that. I'm quoting this because what I quoted was, was proper and biblical. It reflected a biblical truth. All right. Jude, those are my three favorite things about Jude. First John, is this possible? It's possible. Five. One. There you go. Don't, don't egg me on. Ah, that'll backfire somehow. Five chapters, 105 verses as we've broken down, right? Centuries after it was all written. Helps us get around in the Bible to have verses. 2,141 words in the Greek New Testament. 5, 105, 2141. The author, if you read it, look carefully, not identified. Well, why do we say it's from John then? Well, here's why. Because there is overwhelming external evidence from early in the church, from the very first century. You've got people attributing this to the Apostle John. Then, again, anybody who's taken first-year Greek will tell you this. This is where we go to learn our Greek. We go to 1 John, and then you open up the Gospel of John. You open up 2nd and 3rd John. You say, wow, this is just the same vocabulary, same style, same grammar, same syntax. This is clearly coming from John. So which John are we talking about? John the Apostle, son of Zebedee, brother of James, 
Remember James and John, sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, their dad, the fishermen. But it's not identified in the text. Which, by the way, think about that. In John, he doesn't identify himself either in the Gospel of John. He calls himself what in the book? The disciple Jesus loved. He's very careful about that. The only book of John where he identifies himself is the book of Revelation. The others are always cryptic, as we'll see. The elder and others. Other subtle references. So that's his style. The recipients. We need a date. Wow. Let's see if I actually have a date. We can't nail the date down. Well, we know that this is later in John's life and ministry. We believe it's in peacetime. That's one of the things. We don't see that, that intensity of persecution we see in earlier books. I think I, I probably wrote it this way on the slide. Somewhere between Domitian, who was a terrible enemy of the church, an emperor, and Nero. So Nero is first, obviously, in the 60s. We've got Domitian coming later in the 90s. So somewhere in that period. And I think I gave it that date, 85. Is that what I gave it? Yeah, right between that. So that's what I would have said under letter C. Recipients. Chapter 2, clearly in, in chapter 2 of John, we're talking to Christians, little children, young men, fathers, if you remember that, no one is specifically named. There's no specific information like we have in Romans, for instance, in chapter 16, all those names. We have Syntyche and Iodia in Philippians. We have lots of specific things in other books. This is one like Ephesians that because of being stripped of anything very specific, some people question that it's like Ephesians and that is it was a circular letter and that may be. But again, it's a general epistle. And one of the reasons is because it's broadly addressed. The earliest known use of this book In other words, the fact that we can verify when this book was used historically was in the city of Ephesus. So it's often assumed that that's where this was addressed to. It was either addressed to or written from Ephesus. Some people believe it was written from Ephesus and it was written to the Ephesian Christians, but meant to go beyond it. And that's why it's not referenced clearly in terms of the audience. So Asia Minor is a good place to put this. Ephesus, if you remember, is all the way out east. It's almost to the coast, not far from the coast. And it's a nice place. If you get a chance to go there, some great ruins in Ephesus. But we're going to say a general audience, probably in Ephesus and beyond in Asia Minor. Purpose of the book. Now, I'm pretty slow to, to use these phrases in New Testament survey because Gnosticism, if you look up in a Bible dictionary, you're going to see this is a development of a doctrinal heresy in the second century. But this late first century book certainly has forms of Gnosticism. And at the core of Gnosticism, sometimes we call it doceticism, which is a form of Gnosticism. Doceticism, doain, the Greek word for appear, to appear. And let me tie this together. Doceticism is the idea that Christ appeared to be human, but he wasn't really human. Doeo is the noun. To think, it seems like he's real, but he's not real. He's really a phantom or a spirit. And the reason doceticism wants to make that affirmation is because as the Gnostics came to emphasize and teach, if it's material, it's sinful, it's fallen, it's bad, it's wrong. Well, there's some truth to that. But anything material is, is evil. And everything that's spiritual is good. So they had this kind of dualistic view of the world, this dualism. Oh, I put that on the screen. Matter is bad, spirit is good. That concept then certainly impinged on Orthodox Christology, that Christ is both 100% human and 100% God. And that's clearly taught, I think, in terms of assembling that doctrine in the New Testament. That's why John emphasizes things like this. Not only are the things that he says about sin, I think touching on this docetic kind of dualism or this Gnosticism, but in 1 John 4, 2, he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It's such a strange way to put it. Unless, of course, you're battling a form of doceticism or early Gnosticism or this kind of philosophical dualism that matter is bad and spirit is good. Which, by the way, led to two different kinds of expressions in the early heretical circles. Either one said, because the flesh and matter is bad, we should do everything we can do to subdue it. And they became ascetics. They became
between people that hurt themselves and, and deprive themselves. Well, of course, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that say that's dumb, right? People that advocate abstaining from marriage and certain foods. That's that kind of asceticism in Colossians that it talks about. That's wrong. God made the body. It's a good thing. Sex is a good thing. Food is a good thing. All those things are good things. And God wants them properly enjoyed in the right context. And the other form was, if it doesn't matter, basically God didn't even care about it. It doesn't matter. You do whatever you want with your body. You can be a glutton. You can be, you know, an adulterer. It doesn't matter. And that, those were two different expressions of this kind of dualistic Gnosticism. And then, of course, to give an assurance of salvation. And there are certain verses about that that are no, you know, there's no hiding that. Clearly the case. Write these things to you so you can know you have eternal life. Simple outline, walk in the light. Love Christ, not the world. Works are evidence of faith. Be doctrinally guarded. In chapter 5, make sure you're saved. I write these things to you so you can know that you have eternal life. Purpose of the book. Walk in the light. Love Christ, not the world. Works are evidence of faith. Be doctrinally guarded, which none of us seem to in modern church like that, to live vigilantly, but we must, and make sure you're a Christian. Did you get all that? Almost? Okay. Okay. Favorite things. The folly of Christian sinlessness. If you're a Wesleyan, maybe some kind of Methodist, you believe in perfectionism. I once uh, in college lived with a guy that believed in spiritual perfectionism. That's the greatest way to disprove perfectionism, to live with the guy. He claimed he had no more sin in his life. He was sinless. That's what he believed. He reached that level of sinlessness, as some people teach. Well, I think this passage is very clear. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. My little children, this is chapter 2, verse 1 now. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I mean, that's the point, the intention. But, and here's the reality, which he just ended chapter 1 with. If you say you haven't sinned, say you don't sin, that's a lie. And I quote verse 10, but you could also add verse 8 to that in chapter 1, by the way, which says it differently, same idea. If anyone does sin, which of course you, you are going to, we have an advocate, an advocate with the Father. We've got a lawyer. We've got a representative. We've got a mediator. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's righteous, perfectly righteous. We cannot be sinless. We aim for that. We strive for that. We recognize that the Bible is given to us so that we can move in that direction. But the folly of Christian sinlessness. And I can assure you, this guy I lived with for, I don't know, a summer, a semester in in college, this older guy in the church, pillar of the church, he wasn't sinless. No more needs to be said about that guy. I I could tell you more about him. but. But of course, the rest of the book and so much of the book, it's a great book to deal with this, the importance of sinning less. You better be a Christian, and the evidence of that Christian, Christian faith, is that you are making progress in your sanctification. First John 3, 5 through 7, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Well, he did that judicially through his life and his death. He came to deal with the sin problem. And if that's the case, and we know there's no sin in him, he's the sinless one, Jesus Christ the righteous, as it said at the beginning of chapter 2, then no one who abides in him, if you really are in connection with him, if you walk with him, right, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now, again, you need to understand the tenses of the Greek language. There are five tenses, and the tense here is you don't keep on sinning. There's not that continual process that you had before. The trajectory of your life has changed. No one, it says, who keeps on sinning. If you just continue on that same trajectory, you want to put Christ in your back pocket as an insurance policy and keep living the way you were. You haven't seen him or known him. You don't know Christ. You're not abiding with Christ. You're not in connection with Christ. Little children, let no one deceive you. Now look at this word. It's helpful. Practices. Whoever practices righteousness, he's righteous. He's judicially sanctified before God, set apart judicially. He's a Christian because his lifestyle is aiming in that direction. He's not sinless. There's the folly of sinlessness in 1 John 1, but the importance of sinning less is certainly here, just as he is righteous. All right, we preach a lot about that. That should not be news to any of you unless you're visiting. The folly of sinlessness, no one is sinless before they're glorified. After that, you'll be sinless, but you ought to be sinning less, making progress. Even if you think you're taking three steps forward and one step back, you're still making overall spiritual progress in your Christian life. The folly of loving the world, great lines here in chapter 2. 
Don't love the world or the things in the world. Anyone loves the world, love the Father's not in him. All that's in the world desires the flesh, desires the eye, eyes, the pride of life. We talk about this often. We break this down. We restate it in several ways. That stuff's not from the Father's, from the world. The world's passing away, away along with its desires. Here's the folly of it all. It's all going to go away. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Real Christianity is going to lock itself on with a set of principles and a set of, of resolve and guidelines that the world doesn't like. We can't fit in in the world. We're aliens and strangers and sojourners. If you get comfortable here, it's a sign you're not a Christian. We can't love the world. But God so loved the world. Well, when you see the word world, you better define it carefully by its context. Of course, God loves the world, and you ought to love the people of the world, just like Jesus loved us, the people of the world. But we don't love the world. Clearly, here, defined as the desires that they desire, whether it's of the flesh, the eyes, or their own self-promotion. The folly of loving the world. The test of love for Christ. Here's the test of love for Christ. 1 John 3, 15. Don't sit in a room with your theology textbook, your reading jacket on, thinking you're loving God. You may be learning about God. But the Bible says, let's look at how you deal with people. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What is your disposition toward your brothers in Christ? By this, we know love. We know God. How do we know God? We know God by looking at his commitment, his devotion, his loyalty to the well-being of the people he loved. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods, let's get very specific now. Here's what love is. Not saying I love you in a card that we bought at the, at the bookstore. If he sees his brother, got goods, He's in need, and you don't, if you close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in you? How does that person have the love of God? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. You want the fruit of the Christian life. We looked in 1 Peter, you better show some kind of faith in the midst of suffering, and you don't act like the rest of the world that has no hope and no God and no trust in his sovereignty. In this book, you'd better be showing me your relationship with people is sacrificial, giving. You're a generous person. And you're someone that shows the love that you say you have for other people, which is evidence that you love God. It's evidence you have a relationship with God. And it ought to be something that is seen by what you do. Wow. That's it. We did it. We have 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. So we have three books to cover next week. Let's see if we can do that. All right? Let's pray. God, help us very much to process some of the things we speedily went through tonight. To think of these books, not just as statements of your truth, but as living documents that are, as the Bible says, they're living, active, sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. They can pierce right through to divide our, our thoughts and intentions and motives of our hearts. And they lay things open and bare before us as we study them because they get us to think the way that we are going to experience. They make us think in a, in a category that we are going to experience. And that is everything's going to be laid bare before you, this God with whom we have to do. You are going to evaluate us as we looked at in, in that reference to us being a child that calls you father and that we have to stand before you one day. Let the word of God do that for us. Open up to us that vulnerability with you that says, God, let me put these things into practice in my life. Let us learn these things. Let us learn to love your word. Let us move forward in our knowledge of scripture and let this semester that we've had now 12 installments just move us on to a more zealous study of your word. Thanks so much for tonight. Give us uh, one more week of this to be able to finish up our uh, last three books of the New Testament in Jesus' name. Amen.